You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. And tonight, Game 3, Sixers Heat. We start with the Straight Talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. That Straight Talk is the Phantom of the Opera is back. Yes. Oh, that music. The Dark One. Oh, Joel Embiid, complete with the Phantom of the Opera mask. I cannot say whether or not, Sarah, he's going to sing for us, but we know (laughs) that he looks the part. He's got everything but the cape. Joel Embiid playing tonight for the Sixers. Philly fans rejoicing everywhere. More like will the fat lady be singing tonight, right? Because this series was declared over when Embiid was out, but now that he's making his return, Kyle Lowry as well tonight returning for Miami. Will that change things? Yeah, all I know is that the fat lady was probably just a chubby lady until COVID hit, and then we all sort of had our issues. All right, uh, as we get through the straight talk, I don't know where I'm going. Let's get some expertise. We got some expertise from Tim Bontemps, ESPN NBA reporter. We spoke to him just a few minutes before the show started, and Tim, it all starts with Joel Embiid. We officially have him, so what should we expect from him coming back? Well, I I think it's going to be interesting to see how that goes, uh, Fitz, because if you look at the way – this has played out, you know, Joel Embiid doesn't have a soft tissue injury like say Devin Booker had or like Kyle Lowry, who uh, is also uh, probably going to go in tonight's game. But um, he has had uh, this concussion that he's had to deal with over the past week. And as Doc Rivers said before tonight's game, how much Embiid is going to play is going to be impacted on how he feels coming back from that concussion. But certainly for a Sixers team that really struggled without him in the first two games in Miami in this series, uh, just having Embiid back on the court to just take attention away from everybody else is going to be a massive boost for them. And then if he can give them anything close to the normal production that he gives them on a nightly basis, the Sixers will be thrilled to have him back. How much of a series do you think this can be if both teams are relatively healthy and Embiid is you know, close to 100% or even whatever we saw him with just with the, with the finger injury and not the facial injuries? I mean, look, uh, the first two games in this series are winnable for the Sixers, and they just didn't get it done, largely because they didn't have their best player and the two-time running MVP finalist on the court, right? You put Joel and you back out there, and you say get DeAndre Jordan off of him. A lot of things are going to change in a positive way for the Sixers. And, you know, if you look at it from the Miami Heat perspective, yes, they didn't have Kyle Lowry in those two games, but they did not look very effective offensively. Um, they struggled to hit threes in game one. I think it's safe to say they're probably going to miss threes in at least one of these games here in Philly. And, you know, between having the home crowd, between having Embiid back, uh, between the space he's going to take up uh, in the, the, you know, the attention he's going to occupy uh, for Miami's defense, I think this has got a very good chance if Embiid could be anything close to what he is normally of being 2-2 going back to Miami for game five, and then we'll see what happens from there. Tim, obviously, nationally, a lot of conversation about Harden and whether or not he can will this team to a victory where he is as a player. What's the level or what's the sense, I should say, in Philly around Harden right now in his performance? I mean, look, I think what we saw in the first two games is that uh, James Harden is not a top 10 player in the league anymore who's capable of sort of overcoming a elite playoff defense by himself, right? I mean, essentially, the Heat have run the same defense the first two games that they did against Trey Young in the first round. Uh, and like Trey Young in the first round, who's probably, you know, an all-star. He's clearly an all-star, but not a guy that's seen as a top-ten player in the league. James Harden has been, you know, pretty much shut out of the equation for the Sixers. I mean, he's played okay in these first couple of games, but he certainly hasn't been 
the guy that he was billed as when he got here three months ago in the trade from Brooklyn. So, um, you know, having um, having Joel Embiid out there to take up space and take up attention uh, to to draw the defense away from Harden, that should give him a chance to have some more space to operate. And I think at this point in his career, you just have to look at James as more of a distributor and a playmaker than a scorer. And, you know, I, I think that really has been driven home by how this series has gone so far. He hasn't had uh, 20 shots in a single game yet uh, as a sixer. He used to get up 23-point attempts in a game, right? So his, his, uh, his game has changed a lot. And, you know, as a result of that, you know, the Sixers, I think, have to recalibrate what they can expect from him going forward. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, talking to Tim Bontemps ahead of tonight's game. You can follow him at Tim Bontemps on Twitter. You know, you talk about Harden being a facilitator. Obviously, guys need to hit shots if he's going to be able to find them open looks because the focus is on Embiid and or Harden. We know Tyrese Maxey gets about seven and a half more points per game when Embiid is in the game. Tobias Harris, on the other hand, has been really good through two games this series without Embiid uh, shooting better and scoring more. Um uh, from his career highs. How do you think those two guys in particular are affected by Embiid coming back in? Well, look, I, the whole team is going to be positively impacted. And I think even if Tobias isn't scoring as much, he's been in probably the best six to eight week stretch I've seen him play, maybe in his career. Um, even when the numbers haven't looked great, he's been terrific as a two way player. He did a great job guarding Pascal Siakam in the last round, done a good job on Jimmy Butler in the first two games of this series. Um, but look, for everybody involved, if you put Joel Embiid on the court, it just it makes everybody better. It makes this team go in a way it cannot otherwise. I mean, they don't have a lot of good defensive players on the Sixers. Embiid is one of the best defensive players in the league. He sort of single-handedly boosts their defense. He takes away a ton of attention from everybody on offense and opens up a lot of opportunities for those guys to get clear runaways to the basket. So whether point whether you know specific guys' points per game go up or down, they're going to get more open looks. They're going to get more opportunities to score. And you mentioned it before, Sarah. They, the Sixers shot 14 for 64 from three in the first two games of this series. Safe to say, whether Embiid plays or not, these guys have to be much better from three at home tonight if they want to get back in this series and win game three. Follow him on Twitter at Tim Bonteps. Tim, we always appreciate your time. Thanks for all the great insight, my friend. Hey, appreciate you guys. Thanks for having me and enjoy the show. Now, again, that was obviously right before the show. Uh, we now know that Joel Embiid will be playing, and that's some straight talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. No contract, no compromise. Also, Kyle Lowry's back for the Heat. So, Sarah, I want to believe in this desperation world where Joel Embiid comes back and single-handedly wills Philly to the most un, uh, like unheard-of comeback, and everybody says, oh, my God, what a difference. I want to believe in that. I just have a hard time finding it, not just because of the concussion, but also because of the thumb injury that we've almost forgotten about at this point. So it still feels like the cards are stacked against Philly. But, hey, maybe this is the night that they hit their open looks and suddenly everything changes. I think tonight could be the night. Uh, Dan Gelston, who uh, covers uh, sports for the AP, is there in Philly and said the crowd erupted as Matt Cord announced there are no injuries on the report and Embiid walked around without his mask. He looks to be warming up without the Phantom of the Opera mask, which to be fair is a disappointment, but also would be scary if he decides to go without. I would think he would want to warm up and have the perspective of what it feels like on, but um, we'll find out when the game gets going. I think his return could provide the energy and the boost that's needed and could just be surprising enough in terms of strategy and a different look 
compared to what the Heat have seen so far to get them a win tonight. I still absolutely have my money on the Heat in the series because I don't think there's enough good shooting around for them to move the ball and get it to folks other than Harden and Bede, who will be smothered by the defense, to win. But I think tonight could be a, a win for Philly. Yeah, I, I still look at Miami and say, like, there are certain exceptions to the rule for me, and Miami is so well coached and so prepared for everything that, like, I, I, there are certain teams I think could be phased by this crowd and by the momentum and by the energy. I don't know. Miami just feels like right now they're on that run to me where they smell blood in the water and they know that they can end this thing. They're going to get out there. 3 nothing feels like it's impossible to come back from. Miami knows that they can do that to them. I trust a lot in Spolster. Maybe maybe too much at this point in Spolster. Maybe I've overcorrected to the point that I've put him up on too much of a pedestal, but hard to see Miami not coming out matching that energy for me. We'll keep you updated, though, as the game goes on and let you know how it's playing out as it plays out with Joel Embiid and Kyle Lowry both on the court. But in the meantime, the WNBA is officially underway. We'll break down all the action next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM. Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. we got a lot of action to get into tonight, including the WNBA. We're going to get into a little bit more at the top of the next hour, some of the WNBA season things to look forward to, some of the highlights, some of what we're excited about. But tonight, the season starts. Starts, Sarah, on live stream as Facebook will be playing the first game of the season. It's underway, and Facebook does not seem to be playing it yet. So that is... uh, what we'll have to get some of the kinks out with the with the streaming across some new places for the league, Facebook and Twitter tonight. But uh, my attempts thus far to watch on Facebook have not. Just says the live feed will start soon. But according to the internet, the game is ten to eight. Fever over Mystics right now. Well, and that's that's funny because I I had it up on Facebook, haven't seen it yet. Also, let me Ooh, say it's for up. a second, it's up. It's up. For anybody, too, that questions that, as somebody that does broadcasts for ESPN that are on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube all the time, it is not uncommon to have live, mm-hmm. live stream issues. It happens to everybody, especially, frankly, Facebook doesn't give you any of that information to the very last second. I know this firsthand. So the fact that it, the link had an issue is not uncommon, yep. and uh, it makes a lot of sense. So. Uh, obviously, like I said, in just a few minutes, we'll get to top of the next hour. We'll get to some of the big NBA, WNBA action going on, Sarah. But uh, obviously, we've got two huge playoff games happening throughout the course of tonight. We just mentioned Joel Embiid back on the court. Uh, we've obviously got uh, Kyle Lowry back on the court. So at this point, we know that we're going to have both teams fully uh, at their best with Miami taking on Philadelphia. And all the question about Embiid and when he's back leads us to how long he should have been out, which is something ESPN's NBA analyst Kendrick Perkins talked about on first take when he said this. I think that they should shut him down for the season. Let me explain to you. Joel Embiid, being in the concussion protocol, that that tells me he haven't touched the basketball in how long? How long? A week? In a week? You can lose a lot in a week, man. Mm-hmm. In a week of uh, in in the game of basketball. <laughs> Oh, well, Steven you know what? It's not surprising then that the very first play of the game was Joel Embiid committing an offensive foul because, I mean, it's been How long? a week. Yeah, since he <laughs> played. And I have to say, like, if it's been How long? a week since you played, you just got to get your feet back under you. And so uh, Joel Embiid with an offensive foul on the very first possession of the game, my assumption is he'll settle down and get back into it, Fitz. Yeah, and uh, look, we also mentioned the crowd. I think it is important to mention that again. Th- this crowd is hyped, and everybody says, you know, it doesn't matter until you drop a game at home. 
I don't know that I believe that in this series particularly, but I do think adrenaline and the way it plays into the mm -hmm. first five minutes of this game particularly are going to be a big deal for Embiid, for this crowd, for Philly overall, for Houston. How do they handle it? How do they normalize it? Uh, uh, you know, or I, I, for Miami, I should say, how do they handle it? How do they normalize it? I think handling all of this emotion in the first five to eight minutes is going to be key in this game. Yeah, I agree, and I think – uh, the thing with the Heat, and we talked uh, to Jonathan Zaslow about this last night, is part of Heat culture is a steadiness and a consistency and the ability, even if they get down, even if the momentum of Embiid's return, even if the home crowd gets them behind in this one early, the Sixers cannot let up late. And that's a concern, particularly when you have Embiid, who's been out. How long is it again? How long? A week? Exactly. And you've got James Harden, whose physical stamina is always an issue and a, and a question. Um, so that's something to consider, even if this game looks like it's going the way of the Sixers early. Yeah, and that's part of what I'm trying to figure out over the course of the first two games that we've seen. Because with Joel Embiid having been out, how long? How long? A week? Oh, it feels so good to say that. Uh, with, <laughs> even through that absence. There have been so many times that Philly has been right there with two or three minutes left in every single quarter. The problem is it's like they run out of gas. So is that an issue where they're pressing too hard early and they can't get through it? Is that an issue where they're undermanned because of Embiid? Is that an issue where Miami just finds a way to, to anchor down and get a little bit more out in the last couple of minutes? I don't know. I think we'll find that out pretty quickly in this game, though, because obviously uh, you're right. That is going to be a massive key. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. The NBA playoffs are on ESPN Radio. Tune in tomorrow night. The Warriors host the Grizzlies presented by Indeed. Coverage begins at 8 p.m. Eastern on most ESPN radio stations. It should be noted there is another game tonight, too. There are two series that feel like they're almost just dead in the water at this point, and it's only 2-0. I think it's fair to remind everybody it's only 2-0. But our late game tonight at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, Suns at Mavericks. I, I don't know, Sarah, what else the Mavericks can do. We've been talking about it a lot for the last 24 hours, just trying to figure out Luka's giving you everything. And it feels like Phoenix, like, cool, we'll let Luka score 100 if he wants. We're still going to win because nobody else can beat us. And that's working for them. Yeah, we're going to have Tim Kalashaw, my around the horn buddy, on later in the show to talk about this because it does feel like uh, there aren't too many answers for the Mavs. Doncic is shooting uh, a little over 35% from beyond the arc. Um, he's got over 28 points, nine boards, and eight assists a game. But then you've got guys in Jalen Brunson and Spencer Denwitty who look much less effective in this series than they did in the first round. Uh, on the other side, you've got Chris Paul doing unfathomable things. Uh, the, the, the effectiveness from Chris Paul, especially in those moments when Booker is out, um, is incredible. And I don't know how you defensively account for someone as smart as he is. That rip-through play that he does when he wants to get guys in trouble uh, uh, on fouls and when they're in the bonus uh, can't be stopped. Whether you agree with it or not or like how he plays, he's so smart. He's so smart and has been absolutely lights out in terms of his ability to shoot in this series. And um, that's where you start to question, even if you do get Brunson and Dinwiddie upping their game defense, uh, offensively, defensively, Chris Paul is shooting over 74% in the last three games. Like, your defense is the problem. Yeah, uh, well, and I also feel like, you know, we've talked so much over the course of the last month about who we pay attention to and why, and the Suns haven't necessarily gotten as much love. But there was a moment last year in the playoffs where it felt like they hit such a momentum and, and just a level of – of play, especially not just with the guys uh, that you've mentioned, but also DeAndre Ayton, right? Like we saw this level of dominance that it, it just looks special. And it feels mm -hmm. like there have been moments where we've seen that again. I'll go back to game one. 
in this series where DeAndre Ayton was particularly unstoppable. But I keep looking at it thinking, okay, that's that's the Suns, right? Like, maybe we haven't talked a lot about it, but that's this version of this team. Like, when all three of those guys are clicking, they look virtually unbeatable. And we've seen a little bit of that against the Mavs. So I think we're seeing a little bit of Phoenix hit their stride and get that that gear back that I've said all year, look, Milwaukee will care about the playoffs when they need to care about the playoffs. You know, I, I had no problem with the way Milwaukee played the regular season. I'm feeling the same way about Phoenix and Phoenix kicked ass all throughout the entire regular season, right? Like, so it's, it's funny to say that, but it just feels like there's a different gear to the Suns, especially when DeAndre Ayton can be physically dominant. He's shown he can do that. And when that happens together, there's just a reminder how special that roster is. Completely agree. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We've got that game coming up at nine 30 Eastern tonight. As we mentioned, the Suns are up to nothing in that one. And I have thought that they were, um, the favorite all season long. That's not going out on a limb. They absolutely destroyed competition start to finish. The biggest question, of course, came with the Devin Booker injury. He returned much faster than expected. He had 30 points in game two of this series. And for four straight playoff games, he has scored at least 20. This is a guy who, in those moments when Chris Paul needs to pick up the slack, he's been able to, which has allowed Devin to get back into this earlier and faster than expected, but without pushing it and risking it for the future series because um, I think they're going to dispatch of the Mavs and then um, it's going to be quite a matchup with whichever team they face in the West in the finals. Well, and the injury part of it is interesting because there were a couple of times this year when Chris Paul was out, I felt like everybody said, hey, this was the chance for Devin Booker to step up and show the leader and the great player he can be which he did. And then Devin Booker's out and it's like, well, this is the chance for Chris Paul to show that he can still take the reins and lead this team, which he did. Like Mm -hmm. that level of adversity Phoenix has been prepared for every single step of the way. And you're right. I I looked at not just this series because it feels like this series does. It just feels like a mismatch. But when you get to the next series, whoever they are playing, whether it's Golden State or Memphis, that's must-see basketball every night. We're getting a great series between Memphis and Golden State right now. I think that only plays into an even better series when the winner takes on Phoenix. Oh, and we're going to get into those one, one-to-one series a little later in the show because there is absolutely a lot of strategery that's going on in those series as we approach those games tomorrow. We're not going to be prudent. All right. Uh, we'll keep breaking down everything happening tonight, but the WNBA continues to grow. What the, what should the league really focus on to take it to the next level? We'll ask, ask an expert next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. You can't read. Hello? I'm a week. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80 with you on a Friday. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Not just any Friday. Opening night of season 26 of the WNBA. Ratings are up 50% since last year. The league just got $75 million in investments. This is a huge pivot point for awareness, for coverage, for respect. And to talk about all of that from Highlight Her, Bleacher Report, NBA TV, the queen of WNBA Twitter, Ari Chambers. Let's talk about this because I want to hear it from you personally. It feels like you've taken the league on your shoulders to help elevate the game. How does it feel different this year as we enter this 26th season? Whenever you say, first of all, hey, Sarah, I love being on here. Um, (laughs) But whenever you put money into something, whenever you invest in something, you see that return on investment, especially something as good as the women's, uh, the WNBA as a product. 
And I look forward to continuing the trajectory of the 25th season into the 26th season because we see that it's heightened people like talking about it online. We see more visibility, whether it's on networks or on social and and the utilization of streaming platforms now. Players are excited about it. They are capitalizing off their own, you know, brands and narratives and being able to be more interactive with fans. The game is just more present. And that's what I'm most looking forward to, the game just being present. When you mentioned the game being present and talk about the growth, Ari, like, is there something particular this year that stands out to you as being the thing that everybody should look at that's going to be different? You know what's funny? What stood out to me is just people's investment in player movements and, like, how you see a fan base developing around these collegiate players to for them fighting for them to make teams. You see uh, people's favorite mid-level vets getting cut and then them rioting on Twitter about it. I think WNBA Twitter has taken a great stake in the league and pushing it forward. And just player movement in, in general is what's really been sending the girls, uh, you know, up in arms. My girls, I mean everybody. Um, Ari let's look across the landscape I'm of the opinion that even though it is rare to repeat in the WNBA when you add Emma Miesemann and you've got three finals MVPs on one squad potentially Candace Parker now hinting that it may be her final go round there is a lot of momentum behind the Chicago sky being a favorite again I would also say the storm with Brianna Stewart coming back she usually doesn't lose if she's healthy at literally anything Uh, where are you putting your favorites (laughs) early on in this you nailed it, Sarah. Uh, I First of all, Candace, you can never retire. That's not something we're ready for. You're still fresh-legged and everything. Um, but I have Chicago and Connecticut in the finals. I I really have faith in Seattle, too. It's just the parity of these teams is, is, is starting to become confusing to me when I'm trying to figure out who's going to be on the finals. But I want to see Connecticut take it, Sarah. I want to see them really finish what they've been trying to do since 2019. You have Kurt Miller, who's really trying to keep this core group together. And Courtney Williams, of course, returning from Atlanta, where she had a small stint there, but she's, she's come back to her home team with the addition of Dewana Bonner. And now you have more years under their belt to gel together. Chicago didn't really lose as you know as much of their core. And they're adding an Emma Maseman, who has the smoothest game ever and just can keep that ball moving. I love the European style of play that she plays with. So I have Chicago and Connecticut, but you can't count on Seattle, where Super has told us, "Hey, I'm not, I'm not, I'm done with this right now." Stewie is healthy. Jewel Lloyd is still clutch. Ezzy's ready to step out. There are so many factors at Seattle. That's great. You have Jantel Laverty, who's been a rock of this league in general, and people kind of sleep on her, but she just holds it together with culture and um, in the post. But like, I, I really, I'm really interested to see where it ends up. But I have Chicago, Connecticut. That's that's really cool, y'all, because last time I checked, Caesar Sportsbook says that Connecticut and Las Vegas, my aces, have the best odds. So I'm just saying, Becky Hammond comes in, she gets... Such homers. You know, well, that's what we do here. No, I'm really looking forward to the aces, though. I'm really looking forward to seeing how Asia Wilson can really have space to do exactly what she wants to do with this team. And you have Becky Hammond coaching and coaching a point guard like Chelsea Gray to turn her into a legend like she is herself. And so I'm really, really interested to see how that works is there pressure in your mind on Becky because Mark Davis spent a lot of money to make a change there for a team that had a lot of success last year Uh, what's that mean for the level of pressure for success for Becky right out of the gates I think she's used to pressure I think she's used to having to step into places where she has to perform immediately and I and I don't think that she's going to back down from that she is a former player and she's a you know the players respect her she's creating a great culture I see what they've been able to do preseason at least culture wise and 
and just knowing that they, they're gelling together in a way that I haven't seen Vegas gel together. And they all know their roles individually. And so to come together as a team and just really genuinely like each other and have Becky there knowing that she's getting paid, you know, she's going to want to perform regardless of the pay. She stepped away from the NBA um, and, and has assumed this role. And I, I have full faith in Becky Hammond for being able to like to develop these players into the players she wants them to be. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that with, with anything comes pressure, and she's coming from a high-pressure environment to another high-pressure environment. So I'm excited to see her thrive. Ari Chambers is with us here on Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. You can follow her at Ari Ivory. Also follow Highlight Her, especially on Instagram, the absolute best coverage of women's sports and female athletes. And I want to talk about the culture of the league because you've got questions about expansion as cuts continue to hit. Um, and, and that comes up all the time in this league. But I think we're in a unique position now where they just had a massive investment. The television deal is up very soon, and that will be huge, much bigger the next time around. You've got 50% ratings uh, leap from last season. Now is the time, in my opinion, to really look at expansion and execute because I think it's expensive to be cheap for the WNBA right now. There is more risk in staying small than there is in investing and believing in the product. Do you agree? And don't you think that we need to have where you're not having high draft picks that can't make a roster and you're not having practice squads where you can develop youth from within the league. Yeah, I agree with you. The cost of inaction is greater than the risk at this point. And so you need expansion, but I have an unpopular opinion for it. I think the expansion is necessary for those kind of mid-level vets that are like in their fifth and sixth and seventh years where they, they are too expensive for the salary cap, but, but, you know, need to find themselves on the roster because they're too talented to get cut. You see time and time again that, uh, you know, like 80-something people declare for the draft and only 36 get chosen. I am interested in seeing a smaller draft class, seeing how that works. But as far as expansion is necessary, it's time. Uh, There's more eyes on the game. As long as they can maintain the talent level, which they can, you see high-level talent getting cut or sitting out because of um, not having enough space in it. Um, that's going to be interesting to see within the next CBA how they can negotiate that because as the, the, their salaries increase, that salary cap kind of needed to increase, right? And so now you see the the super vets, like the vet, the vets that are the superstars, being on teams with rookies, and it's kind of gray for that mid mid level vet, and you you really want to see them find a place on on the team because they can be excellent role players, they can be excellent additions to any team. So, what's the biggest roadblock right now for expansion? I think that it's just finding investors for for new teams. A lot of people are saying, "Hey, I want a bigger roster," but I'm like, if they're not even playing paying the or playing the players that are on the rosters now, there a lot of coaches only go eight deep. The, the other players aren't going to be able to develop enough. And so I like what Sarah said about maybe a possibly practice squad or like a G League situation. But I think the solution would be to add two more teams. Yeah, you need a soft cap, basically, because you have increased the mm-hmm. maximum salary by 94% over the last three seasons, but you've only increased the cap by mm-hmm. 38%. So the highest paid players are getting a ton of money, but you're left with fewer dollars to spread to the rest of the roster, which is why some people are electing to keep 11 instead of 12, which is why the league is now not even the 144 players that we're used to, but the 132. Down to 132. <laughs> right. Mm. Um, the other big culture issue, as we're running out of time here, we're talking to Ari Chambers, is, of course, Brittany Griner. And the statement from uh, the U.S. and from the people close 
closest to Britney has changed from the beginning where there was real concern about her being used as a political pawn instead of going through the legal system there if it was talked about too much. So silence was the answer. Discretion was the answer. They have since changed their status and her status. They say that she is now illegally being held there and unlawfully being held there. And we need to gin up pressure on all those involved to get her back. What are you hearing from the players about what it feels like to start this season honoring her on the court, but understanding she will not be there in person? It's such a big void. Not having Brittany Griner playing basketball, not having Brittany Griner safe and at home is a big void within the basketball community and the sports community and just the world itself. It's just so unfortunate how it's played out for her, and I wish her the very best. And I'm pretty close with her wife, so I'm praying for all of them, the entire family. And it's just, it's just, it's such, it's the worst possible situation. And so even if she does return, she will. Let's speak that into existence. When she does return in in a few weeks, hopefully, um, I want her to really focus on her mental health. She's had a right. quite a journey with mental health, and I just want her to be able to grow and, like, really develop uh, you know, stability within that and continue to make steps toward a healthy mindset. Because I, I can't imagine being locked in a Russian prison, especially yeah. at a time of war. Yeah, for, for all of this time that she's been gone. And, of course, you want her back and you want her on the court, but you want her first safe and to be able to care for herself. Hey, awesome stuff as Ari's. As always, Ari, as Ari's always. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us and keep doing what you're doing. Keep bringing that energy. Thanks, Ari. Awesome stuff. Ari Chambers, go follow her at Ari Ivory. Follow, highlight her, especially on Insta. Amazing stuff there. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Bundle and protect today under one roof. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. We'll keep an eye on the WNBA games underway. We'll also keep you updated on the NBA action. But next we turn to Formula One, which has taken the sporting community by storm. Why the recent rise and can it be replicated? We'll get into it next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Yeah, we're going to talk a little Formula One here on Spain and Fitz, and I will not pretend to be an expert in the slightest, but we are a little intrigued by the Miami Grand Prix, which is happening uh, tomorrow, I guess Sunday, Sunday at the Miami International Autodrome in Miami Gardens, Florida, in part because of some of the interesting visuals that have already come out. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80, The Glam the 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 speed the mirage that is mm. a fake marina if you've not <laughs> seen this yet there is a fake marina on the Miami track so at turn 7 uh is this sparkly blue surface that has real yachts parked on top of it to look like a beautiful marina full of boats it ain't there's no water there but it's part of the show. And listen, Miami seems like a great place to put on the kind of glamorous and ritzy vibes that Formula One is known for across the racing uh, uh, landscape. And Fitz, this is something we never would have talked about and would certainly not be getting the coverage across different places at ESPN if not for a documentary that has driven interest. And Lawrence Edmondson, who's been covering F1 forever at ESPN, was on ESPN Daily with Pablo and talked about how the last year or so after the doc started his felt. I've been working at ESPN for over 10 years now. And when I first started, it was very much the odd one out. And it still is the yes. odd one out among sports, really, because it's you know so much of an engineering challenge as well as a sport. But now it's all kind of coming around to me. And it turns out the thing that I've been excited about for 
well, my whole life, pretty much, everybody else is excited about. You know, we go to the pub here in the UK and they ask you about it. And previously, if I started talking about Formula One, everyone would switch off and, you know, somebody would bring up <laughs> the latest Arsenal match or Liverpool match or whatever. Yes. And now uh, people are asking me the questions. So, yeah, especially after the end of last year, it really, I, I just saw the uptick in interest everywhere, you know, among my friends, among my family, uh, everywhere and within the company. So it's been, yeah, it's been good. Fitz, I tie all this to the Netflix Drive to Survive doc. That's the first thing I heard really of the pivot point and it's what I've heard driving everyone's interest since. So ever since they announced that uh, F1 was going to shut down the Las Vegas Strip and do a big event down there, I've been talking to people even within our company about how to be involved. I love everything in Vegas, you know that. So how can I be involved somehow in what F1 is doing uh, in, in the city that I love? And the number one answer I got straight out of the gate from everybody that's part of our broadcast was go check out that series. And and you start thinking about the power that that can have. The power of great storytelling in a way that captures everybody is what we're all trying to accomplish with every single sport. But I think it really gets people locked into F1 and it gets people behind different drivers. I was talking to Spencer Hall, who's actually going to be out there doing uh, some digital work. And he was telling me yesterday that he was driving around with somebody going 158 miles an hour. And, like, this thing feels like it is blown up overnight in some ways for us. Not not for so many people in the world that have already loved it. But for us, we're gravitating to it now because we have something to gravitate towards. And when you have some way to connect with the drivers, I think that's part of what makes that possible. Yeah, 100%. It's what I always say when I'm talking about driving interest in women's sports is the importance of – content and when we know that women's sports gets a little over five percent of coverage from most media outlets espn driving by far the most of it we understand that people are not being told the stories the stories the stakes the stats this is what drives people's interest we know that from the olympics where people are living and dying for curling after just finding out who the people are minutes before and then they're jumping on their couch when they win we know that with stuff like the little league world series where the quality and level of play is not the highest in the world the stories that they tell us about why we should care are what drives the interest so as soon as i saw f1 starting to take over not not certainly comparing to other sports but in places that you normally hadn't heard about it and people passionately speaking of it. The immediate thing I thought about, and something that I brought up as soon as I got involved with the NWSL and became a part owner of the Chicago Red Stars, was behind the scenes conversations about how we can do high level documentary style storytelling in order to drive interest the same way. So that people can get to know the players, so that people can get to know the teams and get to know the league and be more interested in the NWSL because they know about it the same way they got really interested in the U.S. women's national team when they started watching them across the Olympics and the World Cup. And Fitz, I think it's not just storytelling like short little features every once in a while about someone's return from injury or maybe an interesting story about, you know, growing up learning from their mom or dad. Really, the storylines within the teams and the leagues, I think that's what gets people's attention, especially as we learn more about what the Sports Innovation Lab and the Fan Project calls fluid fans, which is the modern fan who often attaches to just one person and then follows them and wherever they play instead of just the team that's closest to them geographically. Well, and that's part of what, you know, and and you mentioned it's long form, but even short form, part of what I felt like was missing for a million different reasons in recent Olympic coverage was it felt like we didn't get as invested in some of those stories. And as a result, it became harder for a lot of people to suddenly tune in and, and care to the same level. I think about hard knocks and how much it doesn't matter mm-hmm. what you, which team you're a fan of when hard knocks play. So many people will watch because they just want to see 
what that life is really like. And, and they fall in love with players. Care that they when didn't people know. get cut. Yeah. <laughs> like that we didn't even know existed. It's it's one of the the incredible parts of you know the process. Like you've been a part of great storytelling in in the NFL circles, and even as a Raiders fan, I'm watching you tell stories about Chiefs players, and I'm falling in love with it. Right, like so, I think that that's part of what can be accomplished when you watch these types of shows. And there's a real advantage now in a sports thirsty world for content to be made that that gravitates towards that sort of style so that people become fans of the players and fans of the sport. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's not something novel or new, but I think in terms of women's sports, one aspect that over the course of the last couple of years has really stood out to me is how social media has removed gatekeepers from conversations. And when you don't have a predominantly middle-aged white cisgender men deciding for everyone what they should care about, things start to leak through. There are other storytellers and creators that tell you what they're interested in and the passion and insight that they offer up makes other people get excited about it. And, you know, if you tell someone you've got a five-minute sports hit on local news, and by the way, let's do a minute on WNBA, but that person doesn't care, and they say, well, Sabrina Ionescu and the Liberty, right? They don't say the names, right? They don't have interest. They don't have knowledge and content about the players. That's not going to drive interest. But when you remove those gatekeepers and you can seek out on streaming and social and other places coverage of those things from the people who are passionate about them, all bets are off. And we've seen that across the WNBA and NWSL and women's athletes across other sports is getting the chance to get to know them as multidimensional people and not just here's a highlight or here they won or even here they are as a role model, but instead fashion and, and, and off the court and everything else, that's what people attach to. And that's what storytelling can do like Drive to Survive. That's part of what I felt when I was at the MLS opening in Nashville. So much went into the last five years to open that stadium that was so key to the community and the city and the fans and everybody that follows that team. That's a story I wish had been told in a way that people could have related to. So I hear exactly what you're saying. Yeah. We'll ask you at Spain and Fitz, at Sarah Spain, at Jason Fitz, what team or maybe league would you most like to see get that kind of professional storytelling to drive interest? We'll hit back on that later. Coming up on Spain and Fitz, we'll get you set with everything you need to know as the WNBA season is officially underway. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM, Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, we're presented by Progressive Insurance. The WNBA season has tipped off, and uh, I'm not sure if Indiana has fever. Sounds like they might have more of a cold. Ha! Washington Mystics wow. have beaten Indiana right wow. now, 50-31 to 31 at the half. Are you ready? You weren't ready I know what the halftime uh, conversation is going to be. Oh, yeah, go ahead. What? More cowbell. Oh, my God. I got a fever. <laughs> and the, see, look at us. We'll be here all week. Try the veal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Actually, this is our last show for the week, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but in all seriousness, right now we have WNBA action. The season is underway. Washington up on Indiana, 50-31. to 31. There's a lot going on tonight. We're going to cover a lot of it right now. But uh, one thing that I think is of note of in this game, Sarah, and I pointed it out earlier this game on Facebook, and it's part of what the WNBA has done with their new broadcasting deal. They've got a game tonight on Facebook. They've got a game, the late game tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern between Minnesota and Seattle is on Twitter. And, look, I live a lot in these spaces. Uh, our uh, NFL draft broadcast last week uh, socially for ESPN was the second most watched live stream in company history. Uh, there are real numbers being accomplished on these platforms. So I think it's important for the league to own this and go out into this space and say, hey, we're going to be here 
and market it in a way where people know how to find it. Because if you do that, you can have a ton of success uh, going down that path. Yeah. And as I mentioned earlier, and if you guys haven't read it out there and you're listening and you find it interesting, the fan project from the Sports Innovation Lab is not entirely about women's sports. It's actually a look at sports across uh, the landscape and it's a fascinating study that took over several years and millions of data points from fans themselves and their behaviors to look at the future of fan behavior. And specifically in the case of women's sports, because so often they have to work hard to find their teams, whether that's because it's on Twitch one night and then Paramount Plus, Facebook, this channel, local, national, etc. They've already adopted the behaviors that will be necessary for all sports fans. Fitz, if you look at the fact that the NFL is now going to be on Amazon Prime, it's going to be on ESPN. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be in all different places for you to find your team. Those behaviors and habits are already natural for women's sports fans, but not for fans of the men's big four. Baseball, you have to go to Apple TV Plus to see your Friday night game and you don't know how to log and you don't know how to watch. Also co-watching. If you go to that WNBA game right now on the Facebook page, there's comments running down the side of everybody that's watching. And most current modern fans prefer to co-watch, particularly women sports fans, where you can engage with other people. That happens on Twitch, Twitter, or Facebook. So the embrace of this is a really interesting way for them to once again be in the future. And also some of those issues that come from the years and years, decades even, of established behaviors that men's sports have, have been able to enjoy – those barriers are sort of removed when you look at the modernized version of watching because the WNBA is not then behind the NBA in terms of finding those spaces and, and utilizing and capitalizing them. They're actually leading the way. It's interesting. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, when you talk about that, I think the NFL is going to be a key part of this because a lot of people don't realize right now, and you won't realize until this fall, that that Thursday night package is Amazon Prime exclusive. That's why they're spending so much money on this. So, as a Raiders fan, if I want to watch a Thursday night football game, I have to have Amazon Prime. So that's going to be a much different, like, I don't know right now how the sports bars nationally handle that. I don't know the answer to, to how that's all going to be figured out. You know, there, there are so many elements to this. One of the international games that was just announced uh, with the NFL's package this fall will be exclusively on ESPN+. Plus. Oklahoma just announced, the University of Oklahoma just announced a new partnership with ESPN+, Plus that brings all of their sports content to ESPN+, Plus, including one game that will exclusively from their football team be on Plus. So you, this is where the sports consumption world is going, is mm -hmm. to an a la carte or to a service-driven product where people can turn around, much like for any of us like me that's had a direct ticket for years, a Sunday, the Sunday ticket, this is going to be part of the future of all of it. And navigating those waters is going to be key for every league to figure out. Now, you're right. I think it's complicated when you have to go to different places to find your games at different times. I hate all of that. But I also think that that's more and more what the world's going to and what people right. are going to get used to in the next five years. Well, and I think terrestrial mainstream media is still required to drive new fans who are not yet aware of where they need to go and why they should care. So that's why it's massive when ESPN puts WNBA, Women's March Madness, et cetera, across ABC, ESPN, et cetera. Um, but you, you have those tentpole broadcasts and then you drive viewers to those other spaces once they have the interest and then you flood social media and other content spaces with information about where to go find what they want to watch and that's going to be a huge part of the WNBA continuing to drive like I said earlier 50% ratings leap last season they're at a massive pivot point investment wise and they need to take advantage of it and I think 
Um, you know, one of the things that's huge is you've got really great storylines this year to build off of. Um, you've got Sue Bird, who has not said she's for sure retiring, but has said this is probably her last year. You've got Candace Parker, who's now saying, I don't know about retiring after the season, but has hinted that it might be the end for her as well. Brianna Stewart is returning healthy alongside Sue Bird with the Storm in that new Climate Pledge arena which is going to absolutely rock the faces of everybody compared to other arenas. Obviously, the Aces have a, a, a nice new space as well and, and some, some other uh, uh, places, but Climate Pledge just looks insane. Um, and you've got some younger players coming up as well, especially teams like the Fever that have this influx of new talent. Uh, and then, of course, I'm not going to leave behind your Aces in my, my sky in terms of star power and people to watch, but there's a lot of stories to be told and really well-known names now, some OGs like Diana and Sue and Candace that are still playing as the youngsters come up that people can um, be drawn to. Uh, by the way, Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, uh, we do also know that the WNBA All-Star Game will be in Chicago. So uh, we doing something for that? Like we uh, get a little space? Uh, you know what? I'm in the works, actually, right. we, for we something we like that. Something like yeah, that yeah. Like that. Not sure about you, but we should look into that. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm also trying to get together the women's sports fandom world on August 7th here in Chicago because there's a Sky Game at noon and a Red Stars game at 6. So I oh, feel wow. like, and there's Athletes Unlimited, which is the professional soccer on Saturday. So come in Saturday, hit up that doubleheader on Sunday. If you want to hang out on Monday, pretend to do some work for a coffee shop. Then we got Sue Bird and the Storm coming to visit the sky on Tuesday. I mean, first of all, let's quit our jobs and just watch sports all the time. And secondly, come to Chicago and do it with me. I mean, A, this is a great, like, we. I feel like there's a team building exercise that needs yes. to happen here for Spain and Fitz yes. and Spain and Fitz. So they team should building really, exercise uh, is not Just tonight. take this together. And then uh, if there's a doubleheader in one day of action like that, uh, how drunk is too drunk in between the games? Uh, I just need no, to know what to expect. Yeah, okay. Well, there will be transportation provided so that oh. after the first one goes off, that Red Stars game's looking pretty rowdy for the second half. Uh, uh Devin, you can come too. Like uh, this needs yeah. to be a full team. Like full you know, we'll have me, you, Devin, and we'll just take over Chacago with everybody else with us. I, I feel, feel like awesome. you just. I feel like you just tacked that in on the end. You're like, yeah. you I did tack that in. You're like, oh, you can come too. He looked yeah, up because he was like, I'm going to oh, need yeah, you yeah, to yeah. figure out how to get me from A to B because I'm oh, going to be too drunk. There it is. <laughs> there it is. Like, yeah. Selfish play. Wait, wait. Yeah, so our very young producer is going to be our chaperone. That seems like a bad idea. That's well. That's that's the the best ideas. Are, they start out as bad ideas, right? That's the way that's supposed to work. Sure, I, sure, sure. I don't know. I, uh, I, I don't hey, know. really quick, I wanted to ask you when we were talking earlier to Ari, and and you know there are a lot of people in the league that have very personal relationships with Brittany Griner and her wife and other people. Um, what the mood must be tonight as the as the season is starting? I think in the abstract, it's easy to find the situation of Brittany Griner, who's been detained in a Russian prison prison for months now. Um, obviously terrifying, but actually thinking about it, when Ari said what it will feel like when she actually comes home, God willing, um, that's terrifying. The, her mental state, her physical status, what is she allowed to do there, if anything? And will they even have her at all this season? I know that's not a priority, but that's certainly something you think about when you've got a team and a superstar like that. There have got to be levels to Brittany and the process to getting her back because once she's back, she's going to need every bit as much help as it took to get her here to get her through this process mm. of, of healing in my mind. Like the, the, the reacclimation, getting through mentally what you just went through, the anguish, uh, the anxiety – the mental health issues that will come with it. These are all things that everybody in her life and everybody in the WNBA and frankly, all of us that have ever been fans are going to have to do everything we can to help in that process because no one person would be able to get through that alone, no matter what. And 
I think it's a reminder that short term we need to get Brittany Griner home. Long term yeah. we need to figure out how to get Brittany Hine, Brittany Griner back on her feet. And that's going to be a a difficult proposition. ESPN Radio presented by Progressive Insurance. Progressive makes bundling easy and affordable. Get a multi-policy discount. Combining your motorcycle, RV, boat, ATV, and more. All your protection in one place. Bundle and save at Progressive.com. We'll keep breaking down to the WNBA action, but there was a shocker in the UFC today. I can't break it down. We'll have an expert figure it all out because I'm as confused as you are, but you'll want to hear this next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. We've got a massive UFC card coming this weekend, and I'm as confused as you are as to what happened today and what it means moving forward. So we'll get some expertise to help us out. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. The big news today Charles, Charles Oliveira did not make weight, and we got to figure out what that means. It's never happened before, so we're going to bring in ESPN UFC insider Brett Okamoto. Uh, obviously, you can see Brett all over the coverage uh, we've got going on this weekend, 6 p.m. Eastern live on ESPN Plus for the early prelim, prelims, 8 p.m. Eastern for the prelims on ESPN Plus and the ESPN simulcast, the live card, 10 p.m. Eastern on UFC pay-per-view only on ESPN Plus. You don't want to miss it. Brett, how did we get here? What happens when you've got a, a fighter of this caliber missing weight? Yeah, like you said, uh, it's, it's never happened before in the history of the UFC with a defending champion missing weight. And, um, I mean, he came in half a pound heavy in Arizona. You're allowed to have an extra hour. So, obviously, the hope was that, hey, this guy will disappear for an hour and he'll get back into the sauna. Obviously, that's not fun. Obviously, that's kind of a nightmare when you've already cut a lot of weight to try to get back in there and do it. It's a mental and physical strain. But yet, fingers crossed, you know, that he was, it was going to happen for him. But, guys, when, when you've cut that much weight, your body is basically in survival mode, and it doesn't want to let go of any more water. So he got in the sauna. It, it didn't work out for him. He came back out on the scale, and his, his weight literally hadn't moved. So what that means is that it, to make it fair, Justin Gacy should still have an opportunity to, to fight for a championship, right? But you can't say that it's a title fight for Charles Oliveira because he didn't make weight. So once the fight starts, it's vacant. The title is up for grabs. And if Charles wins, he will have come into Phoenix as the champion, won the fight, and leaves not being the champion. It's a pretty crazy circumstance. Gaethje can actually still win the belt. So you're right. You still have to have an impetus to win for both of them. If Oliveira wins, he does get um, some of the of the money, but not all, right? Yeah, that's right. It has serious financial impacts on him because there's a big, big difference between being a champion and a non-champion in UFC contracts because when you're a champion, you get pay-per-view points. So not only will he lose it for this fight, he could potentially lose it for his next fight because if he wins, he would have still been champion. He would have been defending champion. So his next fight, he would have gotten pay-per-view points as well. So it's Mm. massive. It's massive from just like a legacy career standpoint for Charles, but in a very real sense, it's a a massive uh, dent on his financials too. What what happens? So the easy situation here is if Charles loses the fight, then Gaethje's the champion. We've got an answer to all of this. If he wins the fight, what do they do next about determining the championship? They they have another fight, a vacant title fight, and this is why it just it's like it makes sense. It's really not that complicated. You you like anyone can kind of understand it once it's explained to them. But it's weird. It's just really weird that like he will have he will have had two fights as a non-champion, even though he was kind of seen as the champion. Like, if he beats Justin, then he'll move on, and he'd probably fight, you know, in the fall, and he will fight the next number one contender, whoever that is. 
Um, but it will be with a vacant title fight on the line. It will be promoted as a vacant title. It will not be promoted as Charles Oliveira defending his belt. Wow. Crazy it's, stuff. It's, yeah, this is all crazy. Brett, we really appreciate the insight, man. Follow him on Twitter, B Akimo, at B Akimoto ESPN. Always appreciate your insight. Uh, be safe. Enjoy the fights. Anytime. Enjoy your night, guys. We'll see you. Again, you can check out that pay-per-view. The main event, 10 p.m. Eastern, live on UFC only on ESPN Plus for the UFC pay-per-view there, but the early prelims start as soon as 6 p.m. Eastern on ESPN Plus. So get out there and check it all out. In the meantime, that's not the... Can you imagine if we had to weigh in before every show? Oh, my God. The the stress (laughs) that you would feel about that? Like, I mean, my God. You'd be good for half of the year where you're being a lunatic, but the other half of the year where you're just, like, going balls to the wall with whatever you want, you'd be screwed. Um, yeah, the, the the number of times that I would get judgmental looks both ways, it'd be like, wait, wait, you fluctuated how much this year? Like, there's no, I can't imagine sitting in the sauna trying to figure out how to like, like tinkle out whatever that half a pound you need, or the other end, like whatever it takes to get half a pound out. You're trying to do because you need that money, mm-hmm. like you need that fight. I cannot imagine sitting in that sauna and being like, sorry guys, I'm just trying whatever it takes to get half a pound out of my body. I'm gonna do for the next hour. We hear some of the things you do to get half a pound out of your body during the show. Moving Uh, on. That's fair. That's fair. That's not the only big action (laughs) happening this weekend. Obviously, we've got two series tied at one. And uh, look, these both of these series are are incredible. But I I just keep looking at this Celtics Bucks trying to figure out what to make of two games that look too that, that look so different from one another in this process in a series that's now split at one each. Yeah, there's, uh, this is going to be fascinating to watch the strategy that goes into the next games in both these series. I think when you look at the, when you look at the Warriors, there's real good reason to believe that they're going to bounce back. They have not played well at all. This is a team that we know as the Splash Brothers, and they shot 18% from three in game two. Mm-hmm. That is the worst mark from beyond the arc in franchise postseason history. They scored 60 of their 101 points in the paint. That's not how we've seen this team win. Um, They committed 18 turnovers. They didn't have more than 26 points in any quarter. They just haven't played yet. And they've still won a game and almost won game two as well. So this is where you're seeing maybe the balance of competence and and, and veteran play with the with the rookies and the young folks that you don't know what you're going to get from yet. So Ja can go off, which he has, and I still think the Warriors can win if they just don't play like trash. Yeah, but the other side of it I'll take is that we're one wild layup miss away from yeah. the Grizzlies being up 2 nothing in That's this true. series. Like, I could make a really compelling argument why either team should be up Two nothing in the in the Grizz Warriors series, and you know I'm sitting here looking at the greatness of the Warriors and the been there done that, trying to figure out how to weigh that against the sort of fluidity of the Grizzlies and the the reckless youth that they play with that is fun to watch that just seems to be nothing phases them. Like you've got two teams that are not phased by anybody. Like this feels to me like these series it, for the entirety of the playoffs so far. Grizzlies and Warriors is is by far to me the most entertaining series. It's the most back and forth series, and it's just the most I don't know wild series with the way that they attack the rim constantly and with the way offense just moves constantly. So I have no idea, frankly, what to expect from either of these teams for the rest of the series. I just know that it's it's the most destination must see series I've seen in a long time. 
It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. I agree with you because it's been closer every game, but the first two games of Celtics-Bucks are such a fascinating study too because of the dominance in either one, right? The first game, everyone's like, oh, the Celtics are out of this. And then they come back, not only put together a great offensive performance, but absolutely figure out how to shut down Giannis and to force the Bucks to only take 18 threes. First team in 30 seasons to shoot at least 23 pointers in a postseason game. They took them from 28 fast point break, uh, fast break points in game one to six in game two. Like the strategy changed so much across this that I'm not nearly as certain as I was that the Bucks and Giannis and their size is going to be an insurmountable challenge for the Celtics if they can play defense like that again. I don't know, though. I, I just can't get the thought out of my head of watching the Bucks miss everything in the first half yeah. of that matchup, particularly. I mean, it was, well. an, it was an ugly shooting. Not as ugly as my wallet's going to be, though, because Saturday's matchups, those are the two that I put cash on. Look, I put cash on the Bucks to win this series. I put cash on the Warriors to, to lose the series. So I got the Bucks and Grizzlies with my money. I need this mm. to happen, Sarah. Like, I, mm. there are very few things that I – like, I don't root for teams at this point. I root for my financials. Tune in to an NL battle tomorrow. The Cubs host the Dodgers, presented by Progressive Insurance. Coverage begins at 12.30 p.m. Eastern on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Are the Mavericks done? We'll ask someone that knows next. Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, hanging out with you on a Friday on ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Philadelphia up 41-34 on Miami at the half. Meanwhile, my Chicago Sky in a tight one with the Sparks right now late in the first. We'll keep you updated on all the action going on tonight, but let's talk about the O2 hold the Mavs are in, and we're going to be joined by Dallas Morning News columnist and fellow Around the Horn panelist, Tim Kalashaw. Tim, welcome. And we were talking before Around the Horn today, and I was saying that the national media seems to give the Mavs too much of a pass on having Luka Doncic for as long as they've had him and nothing to show for it. And you assured me that locally it is covered. But, you know, I wake up every day and I get Nets and I get Lakers. So tell us what it's like locally and the heat that's on this team. And I think you just hit on it. Hello again, Sarah. Hello, Jason. <laughs> uh, I, I think you just hit on it because, as you and I both know, we get up on, in the morning and we see what's either what you're doing for your radio show or what's on first take or what we're doing for Around the Horn. And it's the Nets and it's LeBron and it's the Lakers and it's the Sixers. <laughs> and there's not much about, you know, why aren't the Mavs doing a little better? How they, you know, it was, I think it was a surprise to some people nationally when they, the Mavericks haven't even won a playoff series since 2011, mm-hmm. the year they won the title. And that's kind of been hammered over the head here, the, that they didn't surround Dirk with great players his last few years, and that they've tried. They tried with Porzingis and failed, and now they're going to have to try something new here. Uh, yeah, so we, I mean, we might be a little soft on them compared to the way we treat the Cowboys. Uh because they're not the Cowboys. But uh, it, it is a constant theme here with, with, with Cuban and, and with the Mavericks, and it was with Carlisle. Now they have Jason Kidd, of course. Um, that they, they need to do something uh, to keep Luca around because we, we all know you can sign a guy to a five-year max deal, but superstars, when, if they get not happy in a situation, they can pull up stakes and leave. And so they're – there's definitely pressure. I don't think this round, I don't think people expect them to beat Phoenix, but they do expect them to compete. And these first two games were a little embarrassing. So, Tim, locally, if, if things aren't developing the right way, who's getting the blame? 
Uh, it's usually focused more on Cuban. Um, you know, they changed management. Donnie Nelson got a little criticism, but not a ton because people know the familiar stories of Donnie practically begged to draft Giannis whenever that was seven or eight years ago. And Cuban said, no, we're hanging on to the money and we're, we're, we're going to take move down and take Shane Larkin. And, th- and that worked really well for the Mavericks, I think, <laughs> getting Shane Larkin in that draft. Um, so it, it's mostly Cuban. It's a little new to put it on kid. He largely, you know, did a good job this year, made him a more defensive team. Now his screw up was playing Luca in the last game when it was a blowout. And that could have cost them, but they got out of the Utah series and Luca survived that hit. So it's mostly directed toward uh, toward Cuban at this point. Tim Kalashaw of the Dallas Morning News is with us here on Spain and Fitz. You can follow him on Twitter at Tim Kalashaw. Okay, it sounds like we're eulogizing the team already. They're only down 0-2 in the series. Let's actually talk about the series at hand. I look at Jalen Brunson and Spencer Dinwiddie. Uh, Jalen went from 27.8 points in the last series to an average of 11 so far in this one. Dinwiddie, 15.3, down to 9.5. Is it the supporting cast not doing enough, or is there some merit to the idea that Luka, as great as he is, is difficult to play with and makes it tough for the people around him to thrive? I I don't know if he makes it tough. Now, he is going to shoot a lot, and he's going to turn it over some. So when we get into NBA's favorite stat usage, he is he is at the top of the league. But, I mean, uh, Brunson averaged 23 in the last round in the games Luka played, and Dinwiddie played well in the games Luka played. So it is possible to play well off him. I think Phoenix has done a masterful job of they don't collapse quickly. When he gets into the paint, they're kind of willing to let him score, which he has done. He has killed – uh, Bridges, who's one of the two or three best defenders in the league, in the numbers of he's shooting, I think, 75% against Bridges. But they're not that worried about Luka scoring in the paint. They don't want him passing out of the paint to open three-point shooters, which is what he did a lot in the Utah series. So I think it is on the other shooters. I I think the opportunities are there, but but they're limited. There, there's, a, there's a thinking, and there's been some other coaches and people say this, that it, it's kind of like the Harden offense in Houston that it's going to be the Lucas show and the other guys are just supporting players, but we've seen them win enough and, and they certainly, you know, uh, took care of business in the first round that they can do a lot better job. I just think really we can boil it down a lot of ways. Phoenix is a good team. They're, they're mm-hmm. a better team than Dallas. They're the best team in the West and they defend really well. And you can just see the difference the way Booker plays compared to somebody like Donovan Mitchell, who didn't really bother with a lot of defense in the first round. So I, I guess I'm trying to find the adjustment then. Like, what's the path? What's the adjustment the kid can make that will suddenly get them a game or even a, a chance in this series? I think there will be more times you'll see uh, Jalen Br- Brunson at least starting the offense, not just standing in the corner, uh, which is, was kind of their complaint last year the one that Cuban expressed about Porzingis that Rick Carlisle's office had offense had Porzingis just standing in the corner. That's kind of what they've had Jalen doing a lot in this series. And I think if they let Jalen initiate the offense, you know, the ball is still going to find its way to Luca a lot. And, but they got to get Jalen going and they've, they've, 
they've got to move the ball just quicker and get it to Finney Smith and get it to Bullock, you know, a half second before the Phoenix defender is, is there to, to keep them from shooting threes. Beyond that, you know, they can try to play small, but they know they get, they get crushed at the defensive end. So that just gets into a scoring battle and can you outscore them? And that's, and that's really hard to do against a team that's as efficient and uh, as Phoenix is. Tim Kalashaw is with us here on Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, columnist for the Dallas Morning News, occasional sparring partner on Around the Horn. Uh, you mentioned sparring partner is the right yes. word. Yes. Given yeah. that our showdown record is something along eleven to two or something. Yeah, I'm a little dominant in the showdown, but uh, but you more than hold your own during the the regular season of the show. <laughs> um, it's just you kind of become the Mavs in the postseason of the show. I do. Um, I do. Yeah. I yeah. Um, you mentioned the defense, and quickly before we let you go, I want to ask about the criticism of Lucas D. Obviously, he's not going to win any Defensive Player of the Year titles, but how much is it that the team uh, on the opposing side, and the Suns particularly in this series, spend so much effort making him work so hard for every cut, every pass, every play, so that by the time he gets on the defensive side, he's even not good for his own abilities? Right, and I think Phoenix really did that extremely well in Game 2. And you might have seen Jason Kidd today did about as much calling out of a superstar as you're ever going to see, as you're ever going to hear, uh, saying Luca has got to be the one to step up in those situations. He's got to join, not the party, but join the fight. Uh, and, you know, we can do things to help him, but he has to participate on defense. He, he didn't really sugarcoat the fact that, you know, Luca's playing 45 minutes and he runs the offense. He needs to play some defense, and in the fourth quarter the other night, uh, it, it was pretty rough. Yeah. Well, we look forward to watching the series continue, and I do hope that sometime Luca gets the right people around him because they do look close to being contenders if they can just get that right mix. Tim, thanks for the time. Enjoy the game. Mason. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Jason. We will talk to you again. Dallas Morning News columnist Tim Kalashaw. Again, follow him at Tim Kalashaw. That game gets going at uh, 9.30 Eastern tonight. Tune into an NL battle Sunday as my Cubs host the Dodgers. Coverage of Sunday Night Baseball begins at 6 p.m. Eastern on ESPN Radio in the ESPN app and at 7 p.m. on ESPN. We'll see if the weather in Chicago isn't complete trash like it's been the entire spring where we've had <laughs> one day of sun in 44 straight days for that game. I'm doing fine, though. Thanks for asking. Yeah, yeah, I can tell. Uh, a I can tell. bombshell of a story about Fitz's football team is still unraveling as the show is ongoing, but we're going to get into it next. Dan Ventrell, out as president of the Raiders, and his reasoning seems to be all too familiar in NFL circles. We'll explain it next. We were just thinking about what it would look like to have a behind-the-scenes Drive to Survive type documentary show uh, about competitive eating, because our guy Kaz... One of our favorite listeners suggested it. And honestly, it reminded me of that scene in The Goonies where Chunk is talking about how he pretended to throw up at the movie theater. Then everybody started throwing up on each other. That's <laughs> that's what I imagine it would be like if we all tried to watch the behind the scenes on training for competitive eating. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. The reason that came up, of course, is because we were talking about the F1 Netflix series, Drive to Survive, and how much it's played a role in increased interest in F1. And that series happening in Miami this weekend, 
people are going in droves to check it out, but also have been watching and talking about the sport way more. And it had us thinking what team or league or sport you would most like to see covered in the same way to drive interest and tell stories and get folks more interested. We got a lot of women's soccer. I agree with that. NWSL is perfect. And as, uh, as our guy Mike Arnaga told us as we were prepping for the show today, those sports that have long breaks, whether that's NFL and hard knocks or F1, those long stretches between races, those allow for the storylines to build and that get paid off with the competition. That would work well for something like NWSL where there's one or two games a week. Maybe not as much in something like the WNBA. You'd have to do off season, which by the way, Fitz would be cool too because you'd get to tell stories of those players uh, overseas as well. You could do a little bit of coverage of what goes on as they're playing for like Russian oligarchs or in other countries. Yeah, I, I I don't mind the in season, but I do think the off season long form storytelling is interesting. I think there's there's opportunity for all of it. Like I keep thinking about even uh, maybe because I'm you know up in Connecticut, but the yard goats are such a big deal here. The the minor league team, it's mm. hard to get tickets to them. In general, they have a very loyal following here. I I wonder about just watching what it's really like for a minor league baseball team yeah. trying to to get through the season and living on buses and trying to make the most out of the least. Like, I, I think those sorts of stories can be really interesting, too. A lot of people saying cricket, one of the most popular sports in the world. And Machado Gnome said, I want an in-depth show that finally explains cricket so I understand it. Um, I think that's a big part of it is, like, once you get to know the rules and you care about – uh, the folks playing, that's how you get into it. Uh, I, for instance, don't know much about rugby. An Angry Bears fan dad man made that clear because he suggested rugby and said the series could be called Two Props and a Hooker Brain Damage. I don't know what that means. I don't know what any of it means. So that know. tells me that maybe if there was a show about rugby, I would. And I could understand whether that is an insulting name or one that is wholly accurate. Um Willie Chuck Jr., Chuck Kirkendall, this is a good one too. Team Handball. People who love handball are so fired up about it. Like, that would be a decent one too. High Ally, soccer, women's college softball. We got a lot of answers, Fitz, and I think it's it's cool. You could easily see that format. Someone said they thought they might be doing a Drive to Survive type show about the PGA and potentially tennis. Um, any one of those would be really cool. Yeah, and it's almost like, you know, in, in some senses for a certain generation, video games are the gateway drug that get you into mm. certain sports. Like FIFA, playing FIFA is a great way to get an understanding of the rules of soccer, right? And for a lot of people that aren't massive NHL fans, you can go buy an, the, the NHL game or you like 2K for NBA fans. Like there are all ways that you can really get into the game at a different level. I feel like the series is sort of accomplishing the same thing to – people that aren't necessarily gamers it gets you a level of access to it and a level of relationship with it that otherwise you just don't feel you just don't have the same way and it's hard to get to know a new sport and get to love a new sport anything you can do that it makes people invest makes a lot of sense i love the idea by the way of the softball uh, side of it too because i think college that's ever growing yeah col and any Shoot. any college uh, sort of sport i think could really benefit from it College softball, third fastest, uh, sorry, third highest revenue producing sport in all of college sports, only behind men's football and basketball. And it is the fastest growing by far. That would be a really fascinating one. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. I guess we need to get behind all of those. Uh, let's get our production hats on and, and get to work, Fitz. Um, let's talk about your Raiders. I teased this coming out of the last segment, and we don't have a lot of information now, but we sure have a lot more than we did this morning. Dan Ventrell out abruptly as the president of the Raiders. This is not the first front office move to happen lately. Some people speculating potentially this is a power move from Josh McDaniels, the newly named head coach. But as it's starting to play out, we're hearing more. Today, what we got 
this morning from owner Mark Davis was simply, Dan Ventrell is no longer with the Raiders organization. We will have no further comment at this time. That is a wild and weird statement for a, a president to be leaving, especially one who's only been there a year. But then we find out now that there are allegations that Ventrell uh, reported potentially damaging behaviors by said owner, Mark Davis, to the NFL, first reporting it elsewhere, and he claims that he was trying to protect female uh, employees of the organization, and he now has retained counsel in order to fight the fact that he's been terminated for speaking out about Mark's hostile work environment. Yeah, and this is... Uh, I mean, this is a worst-case scenario, obviously, in many ways for the Raiders, who are already trying to cement roots in Las Vegas. Uh, and, and I constantly refer to them in that sense as an expansion team because you're trying to win a, a market and win a loyal following. And many people involved in that local market, even people I talked to when I was out there for the draft, quick were quick to mention not just, obviously, the, the John Gruden incident, but the Henry Ruggs incident. They've had the Damon Arnett first-round draft pick. Uh, that was cut be because of his behavior off the field. They've had other players that passed out on the side of the road. I mean, th the number of things that have happened since they came to Vegas have all sort of started to pile up with the perception with some people in the local market. And, and that's part of why I think it's particularly important that the Raiders be aggressive in showing the world that that's not who they are and that's not how they're going to be. And then you see this sort of a report, and now it becomes the, the constant conversation of transparency because – uh, frankly, it, it, as we've seen every single time you're in these situations, whatever this is about, I think the Raiders' only response can be a very transparent one about what's being alleged and what's real in that because people are not going to give the organization or any sports team at this point benefit of the doubt. So if you're the Raiders, mm -hmm. you need to come out quickly and say, here's what's happened, here's what's going on, and here's what we actually did. And I understand that lawyers will tell you that's a bad strategy. I don't give a damn about the lawyers right now. What I care about is are you telling everybody who you really are? If Mark Davis has done things that have made everybody uncomfortable, then he absolutely well, needs to be held accountable. To be fair, it doesn't seem like necessarily Mark was the wrongdoer. It sounds like he terminated Dan Vantrell's employment because he brought up the complaints. He said, I have committed almost 18 years of my life to the success of the Raiders as general counsel and president. I take that responsibility very seriously, which is why multiple written complaints from employees that Mark created a hostile work environment and engaged in other potential misconduct caused me grave concern. Right. So it does sound like Mark did the things, but then also he was dismissive and didn't demonstrate a level of concern and was uh, was something that caused him to go to the NFL to talk about his unacceptable response. My thought is, is it just that there's a hostile work environment that trickles down from him? Because why else would he take the complaints about him to him, right? It almost feels like it's, it's more complicated than just Mark's behaviors based on the limited thing that we have from Ventrell's statement. Well, and A.J. Perez, the reporter uh, at uh, Front Office Sports, has tweeted out 40 seconds ago that NFL spokesman Brian McCarthy in a statement has said to them, quote, we recently became aware of these allegations Ooh. and take them very seriously. We will promptly look into the matter. And this is, again, I, I think 
this all becomes now this isn't he said he said this isn't he said she said this is where the organization needs to step up especially in light of everything else like this can become the straw that breaks the camel's back for a lot of people if you don't come out and and aggressively deal with it now the raiders did uh, in some ways aggressively deal with other situations they need to handle this one as aggressively and and as transparently to who they are and to what they stand for and what they have or haven't done and if they do that and if they're willing to stand up then no harm no foul they can be fine and if they don't stand up then everybody's going to wonder what's really happening and what what behind the scenes has caused this yeah i want to be clear we're trying to reacting to this as it comes in so it does sound like mark davis is a wrongdoer in addition to potentially not caring enough about stopping his own behaviors and potentially the larger workplace obviously there's more information yet to come and fits this reminds me of so many other instances where there's an opportunity to act accordingly the first time and the cover-up ends up creating an even bigger and more disastrous and more dramatic situation. Um, I don't know what you do, well, though, when the owner is the one accused, because he's certainly not going to out himself. Um, and it sounds like this is going to be a much longer situation than maybe we imagined when we first heard that Ventrell was out. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.